Hi, I'm Rick Ryman. I'm the host of History's Revisitings, a podcast series on what happens when history, in the form of memory, revisits itself. Today on History's Revisitings, we take a look at the 14th Amendment to the Constitution as part of a commemoration of Constitution Day, September 17, 2018. I'll also talk to Dr. Dana Kaldemeyer, Assistant Professor of History at South Georgia State College, for her take on the 14th Amendment. We start off with my presentation for Constitution Day. It's entitled, For Want of a Comma, The Constitution and Birthright Citizenship. Although the first ten amendments of the Constitution, or Bill of Rights as we know them, are justly celebrated as the most important of them, the 14th Amendment, adopted during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, is the only constitutional amendment since then that is just as important. The ending of slavery by the 13th Amendment settled nothing about what exactly freedom would mean for African Americans. In 1857, just 11 years before the 14th Amendment was ratified, Chief Justice Roger B. Taney announced that African Americans had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. This Dred Scott ruling seemingly provided ironclad protection for slavery in any territory of the United States, and even raised questions about the ability of free states to remain free. The legal verdict of this Supreme Court decision probably the worst in all of American history, was unchanged by the ending of slavery. Hence the importance of the 14th. Adopted in 1868, it declared African Americans U.S. citizens by birth with wording that extended birthright citizenship for any person born in the U.S. thereafter. This first article declared that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. The U.S. is one of the few nations in the world to have taken this revolutionary step. While some Americans today regret this, others regard it as a shining achievement in living up to the full meaning of our nation's ideals. The second article of the amendment has been no less revolutionary. While Article I forced the states to extend state citizenship to anyone born within their borders, Article II forbids the states from denying any person life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or to deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Never before had a constitutional amendment singled out the states for a reduction in their power. Very practical reasons made this step necessary, namely the passage by southern states of black codes designed to reestablish a kind of slavery under a different name. But this was doubly revolutionary, first because it prohibited the states from restricting a person's liberty, property, or citizenship because of whatever definition of state citizenship it holds but it also has been one of the foundations of Supreme Court decisions that have guaranteed equal access to public places for all, gender and marriage equality, and on a darker note, the right of monopolies and trusts to be free from state regulation. 
It has been mentioned in more court cases than any other amendment. How did such an amendment come to be, and what have been some of its ramifications? And does the 14th Amendment, in concept and in practice, really provide a guarantee of birthright citizenship? Among the reasons for the 14th Amendment were Republican fears for the future of the Civil Rights Act, enacted two years earlier in 1866. This law defines citizenship in terms similar to, but not exactly like, the 14th Amendment later, and the fear was that it might someday be repealed since it was a mere act of Congress. The law defines citizenship thusly. I will only read the first part that all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States, and such citizens of every race and color. And then it goes on from there. The 14th Amendment was considered to be an insurance policy against the repeal of this right, by any future Congress. Note the following words in the 1866 law. All persons born in the United States and of every race and color. It is clear that the purpose of the Civil Rights Act was to establish birthright citizenship, the conferral of citizenship on one born in the United States, whatever their race or color, excluding only Indians who historically were treated, in theory at least, as tribes or separate nations, and also excluding members of the diplomatic service from other countries. Although the 14th Amendment would provide the necessary insurance protection that the 1866 law lacked, when it came time to drafting the wording of the Citizenship Clause of that amendment, a problem arose. The U.S. Constitution contained language considerably more exalted than most mere statutes. Discrete groups were seldom mentioned by name, especially in the case of African Americans. For example, while the original U.S. Constitution protected slavery in three separate articles, neither the word slavery nor any description of what race of people the slaves were was used. The word Indians was used in the Constitution, but only in sections more remote than in the first section of any article. In the 14th Amendment, the word Indian would be included in the second section, but perhaps following tradition, it was decided to use a different, more general formulation in the first section of the first article, one that would cover Indians and others, but without mentioning a specific ethnic group by name. So the critical language offered by Senator Jacob M. Howard, a Republican from Michigan, on May the 30th, 1866, was that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. But, what did these words mean, and did they really extend birthright citizenship to all? Howard explained, This amendment which I have offered is simply declaratory of what I regard as the law of the land already, 
that every person born within the limits of the United States and subject to their jurisdiction is by virtue of natural law and national law a citizen of the United States. Howard then added an exception, which at first glance appears to be a major one, but which on closer analysis was actually trivial where the question of birthright citizenship was concerned. He said, and I quote, This will not, of course, include persons born in the United States who are foreigners, aliens, who belong to the families of ambassadors or foreign ministers accredited to the government of the United States, but will include every other class of persons. In a grammatical sense, the deliberate absence of a comma shows that Howard was describing the same group of excluded people in this passage. In other words, not foreigners along with two other distinct groups, but just one particular group of foreigners who happened also and at the same time to be aliens and members of the families of ambassadors. Howard in this sentence was merely specifying by increasing degrees the one group he was talking about. In other words, foreigners who were also aliens who were also part of the ambassador class. This group was not under the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States since they were on a diplomatic mission, so their children did not qualify. Now it is true that if one were to disagree with this interpretation and claim that Howard was referring to all foreigners, one would not be alone in doing so. An actual congressman today, Representative Steve King of Iowa, includes this same passage on his website as proof that the 14th Amendment does not apply to foreigners by whom he means the children of aliens. But historians cannot ignore logic and historical context as easily as politicians can. Logically speaking, of course, a child of foreigners born in the United States is not herself a foreigner unless one can say that a womb can somehow have a national identity. But the debate in Congress allows us to clear this question up historically without relying on logic or grammar alone. Nativist congressmen in 1866 understood the meaning of the amendment's first article, even if Representative King does not. For page after page in the Congressional Globe, they railed against the fact that the amendment as proposed would grant citizenship to the children of gypsies, Chinese, Ethiopians, and a long list of others. Senator Edward Cowan, Republican from Pennsylvania, complained that, quote, Before we assert broadly that everybody who shall be born into the United States shall be taken to be a citizen of the United States, we ought to exclude others besides Indians not taxed. On the opposite side, California Senator John Connus, unusual for that time in being both a racial liberal and a Democrat, wanted to grant citizenship to Chinese aliens born in the United States. But the point is that he had the same interpretation of the amendment as Cowan, namely that it granted birthright citizens to everyone except the children of Indians not taxed and ambassadors. Cowan added, I do not know how my honorable friend from California looks upon Chinese, but I do know how some of his fellow citizens regard them. 
But again, both Cowan and Connus, although they disagreed on whether birthright citizenship was right or wrong, agreed that the 14th Amendment provided birthright citizenship. Connus explained, and I quote, the proposition before us, that is, the wording of the first article of the 14th Amendment, relates simply in that respect to the children begotten of Chinese parents in California. Now it is proposed to incorporate the same provision in the fundamental instrument of the nation, that is, the Constitution. I am in favor of doing so. Of course, the late 19th century was perhaps the nadir in America's long struggle for racial justice, and the opponents of birthright citizenship for alien immigrants then far outnumber even those today. It took some 30 years before the courts made it official that except for Indians, birthright citizenship applied to all. In 1898, the Supreme Court made it official in the case of United States versus Wong Kim. It is notable that this decision in favor of birthright citizenship was handed down just two years after the court's decision in Plessy versus Ferguson that racial segregation by law was not a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Obviously, this was a court whose justices were not shy about defending race prejudice or about protecting property rights over human rights. The evidence that the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to all those born in the United States must have been pretty obvious for them to have defended the rights of a Chinese American and rule 180 degrees differently than the court did in the case of poor Homer Plessy, but they did. Wan Kim Ark was born to Chinese aliens living in San Francisco in 1873. He was born in the United States. In the early 1890s, he traveled to China on a visit. He tried to return to the United States in 1895. The collector of customs refused him entry and jailed him in preparation for deportation. He applied for a writ of habeas corpus and sued, claiming that he was a U.S. citizen by birth under the 14th Amendment. The Justice Department, representing the United States, argued that Ark was not a citizen, but a subject of the Emperor of China. The racism of the government's argument was palpable. Ark was not an American citizen, declared the Justice Department, for three reasons. First, because the said Wong Kim Ark, although born in the city and county of San Francisco, state of California, United States of America, is not under the laws of the state of California and of the United States, a citizen thereof. The mother and father of the said Wong Kim Ark being Chinese persons and subjects of the Emperor of China, and the said Wong Kim Ark being also a Chinese person and a subject of the Emperor of China. Two, because the said Wong Kim Ark has been at all times, by reason of his race, language, color, and dress, a Chinese person, and now is, and for some time last, past has been, a laborer by occupation. 
And third, that the said Wong Kim Ark is not entitled to land in the United States or to be or remain therein because he does not belong to any of the privileged classes enumerated in any of the acts of Congress known as the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which would exempt him from the class or classes which are especially excluded from the United States by the provisions of the said acts. Of course, Ark could not have fallen under the jurisdiction of the Chinese Exclusion Act because he arrived in the U.S. before the Chinese Exclusion Act did. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 postdated Ark's birth in 1873. As for the racial reasons, perhaps the Justice Department thought that such arguments would appeal to a court that had recently issued the Plessy decision. If so, they were to be disappointed. The court's ruling was brief and is best read word for word. A child born in the United States of parents of Chinese descent who, at the time of his birth, are subjects of the Emperor of China, but have a permanent domicile and residence in the United States, and are there carrying on business, and are not employed in any diplomatic or official capacity under the Emperor of China, becomes at the time of his birth a citizen of the United States, by virtue of the first clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. It will be noticed that the court in 1898 interpreted the wording of jurisdiction as meaning what Senator Howard said in 1866 and not what Representative King says today. Jurisdiction applied to everyone in the world except citizens and foreigners officially working on behalf of a foreign government. I suspect that Senator Howard would have rewritten his words from 1866 so that they would not be misused on a website today, if, that is, he knew what a website was. The conclusion we must reach is that the 14th Amendment was intended to do what its words actually say, that is, extend citizenship to any human being born in the United States without regard to race or color, unless they, and not their parents, are not under the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States. In 1924, Congress passed a law declaring Indians citizens of the United States as well. Those who argue that the 14th Amendment does not mean this sometimes argue that the decision in the 1898 Ark case is always subject to being overturned. But of course, that argument applies to every law and Supreme Court decision and doesn't really mean very much. But, it has not only not been overturned in the 120 years since 1898, it has not even been questioned, even when the Supreme Court notoriously upheld the constitutionality of incarcerating aliens and American citizens alike in concentration camps in the case of Korematsu versus U.S. in 1944. It did not question the fact that two-thirds of those internees 
were U.S. citizens by right. If it did not overturn birthright citizenship then, it is hard to see how it ever would, even in our tribal times. Even if the wording of the 14th Amendment is not clear enough for those who would misrepresent it, it is clear enough to have survived a century and a half of momentous trial and tribulation. And that, I believe, is worth remembering and celebrating. I am delighted that we have as our guest Associate Professor of History, Dr. Dana Kaldemeyer. Welcome to the program, Dana. I'm glad to be here. I was wondering, has the 14th Amendment played any role in your research as an historian? Yeah, yeah, it actually has. Uh, even though the amendment was passed in, well, passed in the 1860s and then ratified afterward, um, it's it was left open to interpretation. And so from that point forward, the courts were constantly trying to decide whether, you know, that was going to apply in this case or this other case. What the 14th Amendment allows is citizenship and then equal protection underneath the law. But what did equal protection actually mean? Well, that's what they were trying to hash out in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, and that's my time period that I study. So we see this playing out in a lot of cases. When I'm looking at American Indians, for example, out west, I see that citizenship is not something that is typically granted to them during this time period, even though they were born in the United States. They're not officially going to be granted full rights of citizenship, really, until the 1920s. And so... Um, trying to figure out where they fit in within the citizenship question is always something that is very, very contentious, and it's, it's very present in legal history during the 1870s and 1880s. And oftentimes, citizenship was not tied to where they were born, but um, how, quote, domesticated they were rather than anything else. And perhaps more importantly, um, this equal protection aspect of citizenship did not always apply to, to American Indian peoples out west. We see this happening over and over again where lands that are privately owned by um, Indian nations are systematically taken from them. And so we see that playing out there. Um, more specifically, I see it in my work with workers on the railroad or in coal mines saying, hey, we have the right to wages that are fair. These are our rights as citizens. And companies in the 1870s and 1880s saying, well, we have rights as, as entities to make sure that our workplaces are open. And ultimately, the court sided with the employers rather than the employees. And they decided that American workers only owned their actual right to work. They're only only the labor themselves. And so to go on strike or to prevent others from going on strike or to form a union, this, the courts decided, was actually against the 14th Amendment. And so it becomes something, something that was originally supposed to be something that protected civil liberties, becomes something that actually can potentially hurt American citizens. And so that's, that's a couple of the places where I see that fitting in with my research. Uh, when you talk about the cases that went against the workers, what period of American history would that have been in? Uh, it would have been in what we call the Gilded Age. So in the 1870s and 1880s and well into the 1890s, you can still see these same things cropping up in the early 20th century as well, but the heyday of business mm -hmm. is, is the late 19th century. And so in the first two decades of the 20th century, I've always learned that 
there was a change in the Supreme Court and it moved towards protecting human rights more than property rights. Do you see that as well? You definitely see trends of that. There's always caveats, and every time a law is passed, there are always people who, um, you know, use it to their own ends. And we see that with the 14th Amendment. We also see that with a lot of the progressive era laws as well. But, um, but definitely you do see a really important shift in that period. What would you say is the most important thing students should know about the 14th Amendment if it is possible to pare it down? I think the most important thing to know about the amendment is how quickly laws can change everything in society. Um, a law is still only as good as a society that, that has it. Um, and the 14th Amendment was something that was created for, for good. It overturned something that not 10 years earlier had been declared unequivocally um, that black Americans would not and would not ever be granted citizenship. And here we have the 14th Amendment. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Wow. We have the 14th Amendment that says Dred Scott is no longer on the books. We have citizenship rights. And, and that's, that kind of milestone is something that's really powerful to remember about U.S. law. The Constitution is just, you know, it's it's a piece of, you know, it's a big piece of paper now, but um, but it's just a collection of words. But these words really do have power, and so to students, I say, um, if you don't like the world that has been created before you got here, you definitely have the power to change it. But um, it's up to you to actually act. You can create laws like the Fourteenth Amendment, and and you can make sure that they're upheld correctly. And I think that's a really important thing to remember about the 14th Amendment. Well, that's fascinating. And I want to thank you for participating in the program, Dr. Caldemeyer. I'm glad to participate, Dr. Ryman. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. I invite you to subscribe to Histories Revisitings on iTunes and join me for another program on the always fascinating nexus between history and the present. Until then, I'm Rick Ryman. Thank you.